Today's open line is an encore. Please, no calls at this time. I feel very called to become a member of the Catholic Church. Love the Catholic Church. It's just the best place to be. From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, a tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for joining us here on EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We talk faith, family, and fellowship. Father Wade Menezes is in the house. If you'd like to talk to Father Wade, the name, the name, how am I doing? The number <laughs> is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985, and we will put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com, or you can text your question to Father Wade. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Mr. Ryan Penny and Jeff Burson handling our social media endeavors. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into that chat window and it may find its way to Father Wade by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every single Tuesday, our very own Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes. Father, how are you? I'm doing great, Jack. And I guess we could say the name of the game is EWTN Global Catholic Radio. And there you Open go. Line Tuesday right absolutely. now. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So it's a big week uh, for yep. the church. Um, you know, uh, our culture to a large degree is is celebrating the more pagan elements of Halloween that have developed over the centuries. But really, this. Uh, what has become a, a rather secular feast is really based firmly in one of the greatest uh, feasts of Holy Mother Church. That's right, the Solemnity of All Saints, which is November 1st on the Church's universal calendar across the globe, followed by November 2nd, the commemoration of the Holy Souls in Purgatory. And you know, for her solemnities, the Church is very big on celebrating Vespers 1 the night before, and then Vespers 2, evening prayer is Vespers, evening prayer 2 for Vespers is on the Solemnity itself. So how awesome is it that by the time the secular Halloween is taking place at nightfall on October 31st, Holy Mother Church, being just that, a good and holy mother, has already begun her celebration universally of the great solemnity of all saints on November 1st, or for November 1st, but beginning the night before with Vespers 1. And indeed, on November 1st, Jack, we celebrate on the Church's universal calendar, heaven's cast of thousands, I call them, that is, the members of the Church triumphant in heaven, whether formally canonized or not. Now, when including the Church's ancient 5th century martyrology, we know for a fact, historical fact, that there are eight to 10,000 
saints on the church's official saint roster. But we have the virtue of hope, one of the three theological virtues that we pray for at the beginning of each rosary. We have the theological virtue of hope that there's more than eight to to eight to ten thousand souls in heaven, huh? So again, the martyrology itself has eight to ten thousand names on it. Uh, Why that two thousand or so discrepancy? Because the earliest saints of the church were proclaimed by the people who knew them, still subject to Rome's approval, but proclaimed first and foremost by the people. So you have some of these earlier saints like St. Christopher and St. Philomena, who don't have an official paper trail of their way all the way to canonization, but we definitely have the Church's sacred tradition proclaiming them such, huh? So eight to 10,000 saints on the roster, and we have the virtue of hope that there's more than eight to 10,000 souls in heaven, uh, because remember, every soul in heaven is a saint, whether formally canonized by the Church or not. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, early abbot and doctor of the Church, he died in 1153. He says, the saints have no need of honor from us, neither does our devotion add the slightest thing to what is already theirs. Clearly, if we venerate their memory, it serves us, not them. But I tell you, when I think of the saints, I feel myself inflamed by a tremendous yearning. End quote. A yearning for what? A yearning to be with them for all eternity, eventually, huh? Now, one can detect, Jack, the the beginnings of strong, devout, and continuous veneration of various saints by the middle of the second century. Uh, The martyrs were the first to be so honored, and very soon the apostles were equated with them in liturgical observance as public witnesses to the faith, what we call confessors, capital C, those who confess the faith. So the apostles soon became uh, counted among the early martyrs. Special veneration was then extended to those who had suffered imprisonment, torture, and exile for the sake, sake of the faith as well, and these also we considered confessors of the faith. Again, not confessors in regards to hearing one's confession, the sacrament of reconciliation, but confessing the faith publicly, huh? what our sacrament of confirmation tells us to do in union with our baptism. And after the great persecutions of the Roman Empire, honor was gradually accorded to outstanding bishops like St. Martin of Tours and also to ascetics and virgins who had distinguished themselves by extraordinary Christian discipleship and heroic virtue, and whose lives were viewed as a kind of unbloody martyrdom, huh? what we call the white martyrdom. Now, worth noting, too, is that the divine office, and I love this, the divine office, uh, the breviary, the universal prayer of the Church, which helps sanctify the day with up to seven different prayer periods, uh, is also patterned in celebration of these heroic men and women who have given witness to the faith over its 2,000 years. So, for example, the divine office features what are called commons, huh? Uh, For such categories as the Blessed Virgin Mary, the apostles, martyrs, pastors, doctors of the church, virgins, holy men, holy women, religious, those who worked for the underprivileged, and teachers of the faith. These are all the commons found in the breviary. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, again, he says, calling the saints to mind inspires or rather arouses in us, above all else, a longing to enjoy their company, so desirable in and of itself, that company of the saints. We long to share in the citizenship of heaven, huh? to dwell with the spirits of the blessed, to join the assembly of patriarchs, the rank of the prophets, 
the council of the apostles and the great host of martyrs and the noble company of confessors and the choir of virgins. Now, to uh, the Solemnity of All Saints that we will be celebrating, Jack, on November 1st, uh, reminds us of two further important doctrines, and if I don't get to both of them before the break here, I'll, I'll come back to them right after the break. Uh, two important doctrines as taught by Holy Mother Church. Number one, the doctrine of the communion of saints, and number two, the doctrine concerning the distinction between worship and veneration. As to the former, uh, while, while November 1st solemnity honors only those members of the church triumphant, that is, the souls that are in heaven, we are also reminded of, of, of uh, two other tiers given to us in the doctrine of the communion of saints, which has been defined by the church since the 5th century, namely the church militant, those of us still living on earth, and the church suffering in purgatory who are assured heaven, and that's who we celebrate on November 2nd. Regarding these three states of the church, and I love this paragraph from the Catechism, number 954. 954 tells us about these three states of the church, the church triumphant, the church militant, and the church suffering, which together constitute the doctrine of the communion of saints. Number 954, quote, When the Lord comes in glory and all his angels with him, death will be no more and all things will be subject to him. But at the present time, at the present time, some of his disciples are pilgrims on earth, church militant, Others have died and are being purified for heaven, church suffering, while still others are already in glory, contemplating in full light God himself, triune in one, just as he is. That's quoting Matthew 25 and 1 Corinthians 15. Jose Maria Escriba, the founder of Opus Dei, tells us, The communion of saints, how shall I explain it to you? Well, you know what blood transfusions can do for the body? That's exactly what the communion of saints does for the soul. That's a great, that's an awesome quote. The communion of saints, how shall I explain it to you? Well, you know what blood transfusions can do for the body. That's exactly what the communion of saints does for the soul. And again, Jose Maria Escriva, and I'll close with this before our break, live a special communion with the saints, and at the moment of interior struggle, as well as during the long hours of your work, each of you will feel the joy and the strength of not being alone. That's another great quote. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Father Wade Menezes is in the house. We're talking faith, family, and fellowship as we do every single Tuesday. You can also send us an email if you like. The email address is Open line at EWTN.com. Put Father Wade or Tuesday in the subject line and we'll get it into the appropriate folder. You can also text your question to Father Wade. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. Open line Tuesday with Father Wade. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. Be sure to check out Catholic Answers Live tonight. Two hours of open forum Q and A. Tim Staples in hour number one, and Patrick Madrid in hour number two. That's Catholic Answers Live tonight, six Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Father Wade Menezes is in the house. We're talking faith, family, and fellowship. And today, in particular, Father Wade, we're talking about the Feast of All Saints. That's right, and I want to talk about now about the second aspect 
uh, of doctrine that the great solemnity of all saints on November 1st presents before us. The first doctrine I ended just before the break, the fact that we have the communion of saints, that three-tiered hierarchy known as the doctrine of the communion of saints, huh? Uh, the church triumphant in heaven, uh, those of us still fighting the good fight here on earth, uh, members of the church militant, and then the holy souls in purgatory who are assured heaven, members of the church suffering. But the second doctrine is this, uh, how worship differs from veneration. And the church has baptized some Greek terms from the early pagans to help Christianize that culture. In, in the earliest years of the church, we have latria, hyperdulia, and dulia, huh? And they were translated into the Latin from the Greek. Latria is worship due God alone, period, huh? The triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit receives latria. That's true worship, quote-unquote. Dulia is veneration due the saints and angels alone. Veneration, not worship, huh? And then hyperdulia, which literally means the greatest of veneration, that's the highest of veneration due to the Blessed Virgin Mary alone. So it's worth repeating because we Catholics are often uh, accused of worshiping Mary or worshiping the saints or worshiping the angels. No, Latria, Dulia, and Hyperdulia. Latria is worship, properly speaking, do God alone, that is to say the triune Godhead, the three divine persons. Dulia is veneration, do the saints and angels alone. And Hyperdulia, the highest of veneration, is that which is properly due the Blessed Virgin Mary alone. Great quote from St. Damasus Pope explaining all this. He says, quote, We, the Christian community, assemble to celebrate the memory of the martyrs with ritual solemnity because we want to be inspired to follow their example, to share in their merits, and be helped by their prayers. Yet, we erect no altars to any of the martyrs, even in the martyr burial chapels themselves. No bishops, when celebrating at an altar where these holy bodies rest, has ever said, for example, Peter, we make this offering to you, or Paul, to you, or Cyprian, we make this offering to you. No, what is offered is always offered to God, who crowned the martyrs. We offer in the chapels where the bodies of those he crowned rest, so the memories that cling to those holy places will stir our emotions and encourage us to greater love, both for the martyrs whom we can imitate and for God whose grace enables us to do so. So, he says, St. Damasus the Pope, he says, so we venerate the martyrs. But the veneration strictly called worship or latria, that is the special homage belonging only to the divinity of God, is something we give and teach others to give to God alone. In fact, he says, the saints themselves forbid anyone to offer them the worship they know is reserved for God alone, as is clear from the case of Paul and Barnabas in Scripture. When the Lyaconians were so amazed by their miracles that they wanted to sacrifice to the two of them as gods, the apostles tore their garments, declared that they were not gods, and urged the people to believe them, and so forbade the people to worship them. Huh? And so that's just a great quote from St. Damasus, the first pope. And I want to close with this, Jack. Um, 
we must recognize our own membership in the communion of saints, those of us striving for heaven and as members of the church militants still living on earth. We must also pray for members of the church suffering, which we will do in a special way uh, on November 2nd for the commemoration of all the faithful departed and for the rest of November, which is dedicated in tradition in the Catholic Church for the holy souls in purgatory. And we must seek and find great comfort from the exemplars of the faith who have gone before us and who make up the church triumphant, the members of the church triumphant, those eight to 10,000 plus souls in heaven, what I call heaven's cast of thousands. Indeed, we should seek to emulate their lives and their heroic virtue, for they are models for all of us. Mother Angelica always encouraged us to be great saints. That's right. She certainly did. Eight. She said saints are ordinary people in ordinary states of life. Beautiful. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. To the phones we go. Melissa is in Topeka, Kansas, listening on the Amazon Echo. Melissa, you're on with Father Wade. Hey, guys. How are you today? We are fantastic. What's your question? Hey, I have two uh, questions for you. I thought of one as I waited. Uh, Real quick, is the Message Bible okay for Catholics to read? Uh, Melissa, thank you for your call from Topeka, Kansas. I'm not familiar with the Message Bible. Uh, You're asking if it's okay for Catholics to read, so by that question alone and how you worded it, I presume it's not issued by the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, I can tell you this much, is not adverse to Catholics studying other translations of Scripture, provided you use a Catholic Bible as your foundation Bible, especially one with commentary. For example, the Navarre Bible out of Spain is extremely, extremely good. Uh, There's now a Douay-Rheims version out of the Bible with commentary that is very, very good. Um, The the New American Bible is is, uh, fairly new with a, a newer translation from the last five years and also with a better commentary than the one that dates back to the 70s. So the Church is not adverse. For example, I love to look at different translations of particular texts, and we'll look at the whole plethora of different Bible translations, many of which are non-Catholic, most of which are non-Catholic, on, uh, online, just because it's so easy. You can pull up a particular passage, and then I compare them, and then I fall back on the Douay-Rheims, which is uh, the English version from the Latin Vulgate done by St. Jerome to lock the meaning of the Hebrew and the Greek in place so that it cannot be manipulated. Uh, in, in meaning and nuance in modern-day languages. So as I don't know what the Message Bible is, you're going to uh, allow me to, to look it up here, uh, but, but can you enlighten us a little bit as to what it is and who specifically puts it out? It is uh, out by Eugene Peterson, and he had claimed he has written over 35 books, but he also said that he has not written this book that God did. Okay. So I yeah, was thinking, I, I thought that was interesting, and uh, I just wanted to run it by you, and um, just thought to ask you to see what you thought. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I have not heard about that, but I will definitely research that. So thank you so much for your call. Thanks, Melissa. We appreciate that phone call. The number again is 833-288-EWTN. Next up is Isaac in Fairbanks, Alaska, listening on 92.7 FM. Isaac, thanks for holding. What's your question for Father Wade? Hi. I just want to say that you guys are great, and I always listen to you, and you guys really give me more advice than anything. Awesome. Thanks, Isaac. Um, 
My question is, um, Elijah in the Old Testament was taken up in a chariot of fire. How can this be since the gates of heaven were not yet open? That's a great question, Isaac. In fact, uh, Dr. David Andrews got a very similar question from a caller this past hour uh, on his show, Call to Communion. And he says, you know, it remains a mystery because Jesus Christ had not come yet. The ascension had not yet taken place 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. So you are correct. The, the gates of heaven had not been yet opened. Uh, we can know that that um, Elijah was taken to a safe place. Faith tells us that, uh, as Doctor Andrews says. Doctor Andrews said, what, "Is it to a place beyond Jupiter that we don't know about?" And he said that flippantly, of course. But he says uh, to get, to give an imagery. But the fact is, we know that Elijah did enter heaven after the ascension. So remember, Scripture doesn't allow for every single answer clearly. Uh, we look to the writings of the church fathers in the earliest centuries of the church to guide us, and this is what many of the fathers said. Um, we do know that after uh, Jesus died and before he was resurrected, he did visit the abode of the dead, okay, and welcomed those just ones into heaven, those who died in a just state. But Elijah, as you rightly point out in the scripture passage, Isaac, is a little more uh, uh, different because we're told specifically that he went into the heavens um, and not to an abode of the dead waiting for the Messiah to come. So he went someplace very special, and we have the certitude of faith that he entered heaven following the ascension of Jesus 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. Thank you for your call, Isaac, from Fairbanks, uh, Arkansas. Alaska. Oh, Alaska. Excuse me. Yes, Fairbanks, Alaska. Great. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Talking faith, family, and fellowship. Not geography so much, but faith, family, and fellowship. (laughs) You can also send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Next up is Russell in the North Georgia Mountains, listening on Sirius XM 130. Russell, you're on with Father Wade. Good afternoon, Father. Good afternoon, Russell. Thank you for your call today. Well, thank you for all that you do, and just for being a Catholic priest and teaching us all so much. You're so helpful in uh, my faith. Well, thank Uh, you, brother. I appreciate the phone call. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm a big in the Knights of Columbus, and we have, you know, venerable Father Michael J. McGivney. Uh, Bans were talking about saints today. I was wondering... Do we have any idea how much longer he may have to wait because before he becomes a saint? You know, the latest I heard, and it was just about three months ago when the annual convention took place, is that his cause is progressing, and it is progressing on time. And so we're hoping within the next three to five years is my understanding. Uh, I am a devotee of his. Uh, I think he's great to talk about, especially regarding uh, the modern-day crisis of men and masculinity. Father McGivney had a great love for the man of the house. He had a great love for husbandhood and fatherhood, so much so that when he knew that a husband and father became truly incapacitated and would not be able to carry out his duties as a husband and father— He founded or established the Knights of Columbus uh, and their insurance uh, to aid uh, the wives and the mothers, uh, the the wives of these men who became incapacitated. And so he's just a, a great lover of the sanctification of marriage and family life, and I think that we need him so much today uh, to, to to be raised to the 
elevation of the saints in heaven. I, I do believe that very much. Um, you know, I've, I've read two biographies of his. One was an actual biography. The other one was more of a, of a paper on his life. But I'd like to share some outstanding characteristics that show forth in his life that give a great uh, blueprint for men today, both single and married men. Uh, and here's some of the ones that I culled from reading these two works. Uh, forgiveness and mercy, fatherly instinct, loyalty and compassion, humility, fidelity or faithfulness, a lover of wisdom and searcher for truth, fraternity and camaraderie, allegiance, bravery and constancy, provider, an instilled sense of duty and responsibility, moral uprightness and truth, chivalry, leadership, affability and approachability, protector, defender, and patriot. Great, great man, Father Michael McGivney, the founder of the Knights of Columbus. Thank you so much for your call, and let's continue to pray for his advancement to sainthood. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. EWTN's Open Line, Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. Line open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Back to the phones. We go, you know, Father Wade, I love practical, down-to-earth questions, and Mora has a fabulous down-to-earth question. She's calling from San Diego, California, watching on YouTube. Mora, you're on with Father Wade. What's your question? Hi, Father Wade. I was in the Bible. It talks about God being in on a throne. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, special to me, but I just want to know if he's actually on the throne right now, or was it just spiritual throne, or because it can't be a physical throne, like I mean a physical throne, right? Because I, I haven't been to heaven yet, so I don't know, and I don't say that to be flippant, but I, I say it because we we just don't know. Scripture uses imagery. We do know this: a throne is a sign of what authority. And it's not just a mere stool or a chair, it's a throne, which is usually a term applied to the seat of a ruler, a king. And because God is seated on his throne in heaven, uh, we have a great sense of the authority of God, of the overarching omniscience of God. Um, uh, He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he is God. Uh, three persons in one God, one God and three divine persons. And then in the imagery of the Trinity, we know that the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? Um, the Holy Spirit hovers. Uh, we see the Holy Spirit hovering at Jesus' baptism. We see the Holy Spirit hovering um, at the transfiguration with uh, Jesus and James, Peter, and John uh, atop the mountain, which tradition holds as Mount Tabor. So, Going back to the sense of throne, we know that God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's the creator of the universe, and so when we talk about God on a throne in Scripture, when we refer to his throneship in heaven, he is the king, capital K, of heaven and earth. He, he is God. He is that greatest thing of which nothing greater can be thought, God. And uh, so he's, it's a sign of authority. Don't think so much of the throne, uh, Mora, as a, a, a physical chair 
quote unquote, but think of it more as a as a sign of authority, a, a visible sign of his authority, his all powerfulness, his all knowingness. Does that kind of help you out? I, I hope it does. Yeah, that helps a lot. Okay, that makes sense. Maybe if someone had a yeah. near uh Okay, thank you. God bless yeah, th- you, Maura. Th- God bless you, Maura. Think, think of authority. Think of kingship. You know, it's interesting, Jack, too. We talk about the chair of St. Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the successor of Peter sits on the chair of Peter. It's a sign of authority of the papal office as Peter headed the Twelve Apostles by Jesus' own command. Next stop for us is Pasadena, Texas. Thomas is in the Republic of Texas listening on Guadalupe Radio. Thomas, you're on with Father Wade. Yes, I know what uh, Matthew said that how Jesus was born, how did they pick out the date that he was born on the 25th? How did they determine that? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and it comes from early century scholars. You know, I want to say this, how wonderful it would be, huh, if our Lord had been born in the age of information technology, or even when public records offices issued birth certificates, but that's just not the case, right? Um, And so, alas, uh, the Gospels themselves do not provide much information. Nevertheless, we look to other scriptural texts uh, for our detective work, if you will, uh, that can help us determine the date of Christ's birth, or to be very, very close to it. Uh, for example, St. Luke related the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to his elderly parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, Zechariah was a priest of the class of Abijah, uh, Luke chapter 1, and he was the eighth class of 24 priestly classes, we find out from Nehemiah 12. And each class we know from Scripture served one week in the temple twice a year. And so we've had early scholars, uh, the German church has contributed to this quite a bit, in fact, looking at such things as the Day of Atonement on, on the Jewish calendar, uh, in the Jewish month of, of Tishri. Um, we have those passages I just mentioned. Um, we celebrate the Nativity of John the Baptist on June 24th for reasons directed uh, to those particular scholars from the German church. Um, Luke also recorded how the Archangel Gabriel told Mary that Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John in Luke 1.36. That's very specific. She's six months along, huh? Which means the Annunciation occurred on March 25th, and as we celebrate uh, Jesus's nine-month gestation, like any human person in the womb of their human mother, although Jesus was not a human person, he was and remained a divine person, the second person of the Trinity, who took on a full human nature, thereby having a nine-month gestation period himself, um, we count uh, nine months out from March 25th, and we arrive at December 25th. So, so it, it's it's a it's a series of of um, of different things that help us arrive at that date. Uh, and and then you have now you have uh, cosmologists who have looked at the stars and have gone back uh, base, basically to the the rhythm of the cosmos and have determined that that's very very accurate for that time of year December twenty fifth based on what Scripture says again and what we know just from the rotation of the stars. So great question. I hope that answers answers your question. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One line open at 833-288-3986. That's the number Sharon used. She's in your neck of the woods, Father Wade, in Walton, Kentucky, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Sharon, you're on with Father Wade. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for letting me get my question in. It's our pleasure. Go right ahead. Yes, I was wondering, um, in regards to praying for the souls in purgatory, um, 
I have a couple of prayers, and one um, involves praying just a general prayer for all the souls in purgatory. Um, and then I have another one that's more for your um, your family, for all your loved ones. Um, and um, it asks, you know, to fill in the blanks, sort, sort of to put your family's members' names in there. My question is um, just really... Some of my uh, family has uh, passed away. It's been 20, 30 years, some more recent. Do I just continue just adding names to my list? Or, I mean, you know, I know God's time is not our time, so is there ever an ending to uh, praying for our family? That's a great question, Sharon, and thank you for your devotion to the holy souls. Um, If those souls of your family members indeed are in heaven, uh, excuse me, in purgatory, and if they are already in heaven, then God applies those prayers of yours for the holy souls accordingly to others, known and unknown to you. Um, I think it's a both and. I don't think God wants us to become scrupulous about listing every single name, you know, uh, especially as time goes on on, on, the, on the calendar and we have relatives that pass away and our list grows longer and longer. This is why the St. Louis Marie de Montfort consecration is so great, because we give everything, everything to our blessed mother to hand over to her son as she sees fit as our mother, the mother of God. And so there's no need to, to get scrupulous about specific names. What you could do is find the happy medium of having a, a nice notebook, maybe a spiritual decorative notebook that you can pick up at a Christian bookstore, a Catholic Christian bookstore, something that maybe has the, a psalm passage on the front engraved, something nice, because you're talking about the dead, and there's a certain reverence we want to give the dead. And you can write down their names— Indeed, as they die, write down their name. But then for your daily prayer, why not say something like this, Sharon? And for all my relatives and friends mentioned in my book of the deceased. That's it. God knows who's in your book of the deceased, right? We, we Fathers of Mercy, at the foot of our sanctuary in our beautiful Chapel of Divine Mercy here at our Generalate House in Auburn, Kentucky, we have a beautiful saints reliquary of over 130 blesseds and saints of the church. And what's so great about it is most of them have been declared blessed or saints within the last 120 years only. That's a, that's a drop in the bucket, very short on the calendar when you think about the church being 2,000 years of age. So a lot of modern day, more modern time blesseds and saints. And what do we have right next to that saints reliquary? A decorative table with a decorative book where people who visit our chapel can write their personal needs and intentions. And then what we do at every daily Mass, Monday through Sunday, when we pray the the universal prayer, which is more commonly known as the prayers of the faithful or the general intercessions, which come right after the homily or which come right after the creed on Sunday or a solemnity, the very last petition prayed during that universal prayer, the prayers of the faithful or the general intercessions, the very last prayer is worded thus, and for all those needs and intentions written in our book of petitions, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. God knows, literally, God knows what every person who has visited our chapel and who's picked up the pen to write down their personal needs and intentions in that book, God knows what they've written. There's no way the Fathers of Mercy could verbally enunciate during the Mass every single petition. Some of those petitions in that book have been answered. Some have not been answered. Some were asked for recovery for a sick person. Maybe the person recovered, maybe they're still sick. God knows. And so that's a great great way to do it, Sharon, is for the deceased, have a book of the deceased, since you're asking specifically about the deceased and praying for the holy souls in purgatory. 
uh, have a, a, a nice decorative home book of the dead, book of the deceased, that you lift up every day in prayer and you give those souls to God. I hope that helps you out, uh, Sharon. Thank you for calling from Walton, Kentucky, not too far from Auburn, but a, a little bit of a drive. Thank you so much. Next stop for us is Colorado Springs, Colorado. Robert is in Colorado listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Robert, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father. Thanks for taking my call. I uh, This is regarding a question uh, you answered earlier about Elijah, and I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on the, uh, on the theory that Elijah never did die. And I guess there's two questions. The other one was, um, if he did go to heaven... Um, would it would it not be after the resurrection, or would it be after the ascension? Is that is it, was it after the ascension the gates of heaven were open, or after the resurrection? Two great questions, Robert. Thank you for your call from Colorado Springs. The stronger tradition with the Church Fathers writing in the earliest centuries and doing their scriptural exegesis is that the gates of heaven were open after the ascension, because Jesus had not yet ascended. So uh, human persons before the God-man would not enter heaven without him being there. And so remember, we have the 40 days of what are called the post-resurrection accounts from uh, Easter Sunday all the way through Ascension Thursday, a 40-day count. For example, when Jesus appears in the upper room and he has his interaction with Thomas because Thomas is doubting, that's a post-resurrection account during this 40-day period between the resurrection and the Ascension. When the, some of the apostles see him on the beach uh, uh, grilling some fish, and then he says, you know, do you want some? Eat with me. And so it, it's showing the, the transfigured, glorified Lord in his body. Um, so these are the post-resurrection accounts. Jesus has not yet definitively ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of his Father. Uh, and so the stronger tradition is that the souls would not have entered heaven until then. But then there's also good speculation that right after, theological speculation, that right after Jesus ascended to the abode of the dead during his own time in the tomb, he did release those souls to enter into heaven. So we call this theological conjecturing, theological speculation. Uh, there's good arguments for both sides of the debate, and the Church does not definitively answer that question. The stronger tradition is that it would be after the Ascension, and that Jesus visited the abode of the dead, they were relieved to see him, but they did not enter heaven until he himself ascended after the 40th day. And uh, your first question, uh, uh, I forget what the first question was, if you can repeat that first part of your question. What, what, um, just what your take on was uh, concerning Elijah not actually, uh, Elijah still being alive, like not actually going to heaven, but perhaps the heavens or the, someplace yeah. else. Right. That's, again, like Dr. David Anders uh, intimated in, in his hour before me today, you know, did he go to someplace beyond Jupiter <laughs> and, and hold, up, hold up there until he could enter heaven? We do know this, uh, Elijah would have experienced some type of judgment. Uh, all humans are judged. Nobody ex escapes the judgment of God. And so even if he went straight to heaven without dying, that's what you asked me. Uh, I just said it out loud. I answered my own question. You would ask specifically, is it possible could, that he could have gone to heaven without dying? Well, that is possible. Again, theological conjecturing or speculation. One thing's for certain, he would be judged. Uh, the same theological conjecture, Scripture just answer this. So we look to the writings of the Church Fathers, and also beyond the Church Fathers, like Thomas Aquinas. What about those people living at the very end times of the second coming of Christ, the general judgment? 
Will they die? Well, we don't know. The book of Revelation doesn't say. But what we do know is that they, everybody will experience judgment. So even if those living at the time of the general judgment of Christ, the second coming of Christ, don't die, they will still be judged. Judgment's more important than death, so to speak. Uh, but then there's also good theological conjecturing that they will have to experience some type of death uh, in order to be judged. So we, we simply don't know. Uh, uh, scripture does not allow for the answering of every single uh, question about these individual characters in Scripture. So we look to sacred tradition, which looks at the Scripture, and we look to the magisterium of the Church, the teaching office of the Church, which looks at the Scripture. This is why the three-legged stool is so important. Again, sacred Scripture, sacred tradition, for example, the writings of the Church Fathers, handed down orally, written form, and the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, which itself is rooted or grounded in the apostolic college of the original 12. Uh, thank you, Robert. Two great questions. Thank you so much. We've got a very special event to tell you about, the Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. It's a powerful five-part miniseries where we discuss the issues now confronting the family and how the church can respond. Plus, Father Wade's going to take your phone calls and emails. That's uh, an EWTN open line week-long event next week. So we're going to be doing this all next week. Um, we will play the episode for the day, which is uh, about a half an hour long. And then the back half of the program, you'll have an opportunity to uh, call in with questions uh, from the host of that day, whether it be Father John Tregilio on Monday, Father Wade on Tuesday, uh, Father Mitch Paqua on Wednesday, uh, Father Brian Malady on Thursday, and uh, Colin Donovan, our Vice President of Theology, on Friday. So it starts this Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern and encores at 10 p.m. Eastern all week long right here on EWTN Radio. The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know, next week every day, 3 p.m. Eastern, encore at 10 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones we go. Charlie's in the great state of New Jersey listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Charlie, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Um... Uh, I just want to say uh, I listen to you guys uh, all the time in the car, and um, I have permission from my parents to call you. Um, and my question was, um, I was in the hospital a couple months ago uh, because I needed surgery, and um, I'm a practicing Catholic, so I go to uh, church every Sunday. And um, I wasn't able to go uh, out of the hospital on and it was Sunday, um, but a Eucharistic minister came to me and gave me communion, and um, I just wanted to know um, how old you have to be in order to become a Eucharistic minister, and um, how to become one. Well, great questions, Charlie, and glad you're out of the hospital, and I'm glad you were able to receive the Eucharist by an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion while you were in the hospital, have Jesus brought to you in the Blessed Sacrament. That was, that's a great gift and uh, great questions you ask. Uh, first of all, how old do you have to be to be an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion? Technically speaking, you have to at least have received the Sacrament of Confirmation, which in this country, the USCCB, the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops, have uh, uh, issued the Sacrament of, administered the Sacrament of Confirmation to the members of their dioceses, eighth grade through sophomore year in high school. That being said, there are a few bishops who 
have done it even earlier than that. But at least eighth grade through sophomore year in high school is, generally speaking, when the sacrament of confirmation is administered, all right? It's one of the three sacraments of initiation, along with uh, Eucharist and baptism, all right? So you have to at least have been confirmed. And I would think that the bishops that do it earlier, uh, like fourth grade and fifth grade, and there's a few bishops that administer confirmation earlier in that grade because they believe the young person needs it sooner because of, of more challenges today to young people, um, it's, they probably would not permit you to be a Eucharistic minister in fourth or fifth grade. It's just too young. But you want to at least be confirmed, number one. Number two, canon law does not specify what the age needs to be, only that you should have received confirmation. So each bishop would tell his pastors what the age is that one can be a Eucharistic minister, an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist. We call them EMEs, Extraordinary Minister of the Eucharist, because an ordinary minister of the Eucharist is a priest, a deacon, or bishop. Those are ordinary ministers. But an extraordinary minister of the Eucharist is someone who's properly delegated or properly deputed, where we get the word deputy from, like a sheriff's deputy. You're properly deputed or delegated to be an, an EME, an Extraordinary Minister of the Eucharist. So what you would need to do, Charlie, to find out your precise answer to your precise question of how old you need to be, I would call your diocesan pastoral center, ask to speak to the Office of Liturgy, and say this to them. Say, I know that one needs to at least be confirmed to be an EME, but what is the age one needs to be to be an EME? I know that one needs to be confirmed between 8th grade and confirmation in our diocese, 8th uh, grade and 10th grade in our diocese, and maybe you know what age that is in your diocese. Maybe you know that they receive confirmation in the 10th grade. Fine. But what age specifically, how old do you need to be the, to be the EME? So two great questions, Charlie. Thank you so much. Next up is Delia in Burnaget, New Jersey. She's listening on the Amazon Echo. Delia, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, good afternoon, Father Wade. Um, I have a confusion between cardinal and bishops, um, you know, the hierarchy in the Church. I don't know what is the duties of those two. And then um, also in the Scripture, there is um, something that says, whatever you bond on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth is lost in heaven. So what are those examples of those that, the, you know, the Church has done to have that you know, uh, done here in heaven and also, I mean, in on earth, and it's also in heaven. Yeah, two two great questions. Thank you. In regards to the, the, the last part of your question about binding and loosing the authority thereof, that uh, deals, Adelia, with uh, the magisterial powers of the Church rooted in the Apostolic College of the Original Twelve, something I alluded to just a little earlier with another question. Um, the magisterium we teach in the Church is the Living Teaching Office, capital O, the Living Teaching Office of the Church, whose task it is, we say, um, is to give authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form, sacred scripture, or in the form of tradition handed on orally or written in non-scriptural texts, um, because scripture is in a category all by its own. Um, the, magisterial ensure, the magisterium ensures, we say, the Church's fidelity to the teaching of the apostles in matters of faith and morals. And, and so that's what we mean by magisterium. And the magisterium has the power, and that's not too strong a word, 
um, to bind and loose one from sin, huh? In regards to teachings of faith and morals. So, for example, it's a it's a magisterial teaching of the Catholic Church that abortion is an intrinsic evil. It can never, ever be done. There's no good reason for an abortion. It can never, ever, ever be done, period. Uh, fornication, uh, adultery, uh, homosexual activity, these are intrinsic evils. They could never, ever be done. They, they contravene God's moral law, and seriously so, huh? Um, so so that's, those are examples of magisterial teachings that, that are moral. Uh, dogmatic uh, magisterial teachings, we look at to the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that she was preserved from all stain of original sin in her mother's womb, St. Anne's womb, uh, thereby preparing her for the office of the divine maternity, which she herself held, Mary held, the office of Mother of God. We also look to the doctrine. Uh, dogmatic um, magisterial teaching of her assumption that Mary was assumed uh, body and soul into heaven upon the uh, end of her earthly life. So th- that's what we mean by binding and loosing uh, in regards to faith and morals, particular doctrines of the Church. Again, the living teaching office of the Church, whose task it is to give as an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, uh, whether in the written form, divinely inspired, sacred scripture, which is in a class all by itself, or in the form of tradition handed on orally and possibly in written form that is not necessarily divinely inspired like Scripture is. Again, Scripture being in a class by itself. And the magisterium ensures the Church's fidelity to the teaching of the apostles in matters of faith and morals. There's a beautiful, beautiful section on the magisterium in the teaching, uh, and the teaching office of the Church in the Catechism uh, in the sections, uh, the 890s, the 890, like 890, 895, and so forth. Now, in regards to bishops and, and deacons, uh, excuse me, bishops and cardinals, um, we have cardinal bishops. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the highest order or rank uh, among the cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church. Originally, the, the designation identified those members of the College of Cardinals who were actually bishops, huh? Uh, to distinguish them from cardinals who were only priests or deacons. Okay, but Pope Sixtus V in the 1580s, after the Council of Trent, determined that there should be only six cardinal bishops among a total number of 70 cardinals. In 1962, however, now St. John XXIII decreed that from then on all cardinals should likewise be consecrated bishops, and that's the latest teaching. So um, not all bishops are cardinals, but all cardinals are bishops. I hope that answers your question, and they have voting rights, especially in papal uh, conclaves, to elect the new pope. Thank you so much. By the way, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with you all this day and always. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. St. Joseph, terror of demons. Pray for us. Give us that website for the Fathers of Mercy www.fathersofmercy.com with two come and see weekends coming up November 24th and 25th and December 29th and 30th. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, producer Michael McCall, call screener Ryan Penny and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Person. I'm Jack Williams, back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless. <laughs>